welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Jay, for being a guest on my podcast. Thank and you for having me. So, Jay Y. Kim serves as lead pastor at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley of California and teacher in residence at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, Jay's the author of several books, including Analog Church and Analog Christian. And uh, your writing's been featured in Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, and other pu- publications. And um, Jay and his wife and their two young children call Silicon Valley of California their home. And then recently you've come out with a um, Bible study on Colossians. It looks like it's a book plus a video guide. And um, so I thought maybe first I could just ask you about yourself and then we could kind of get into Colossians some. Sure. Okay. So um, I guess, you know, maybe just starting out with how did you get started with Christianity, Jay? Wow, great question. Well, um, yeah, I grew up going to church. My mother and I went to church uh, a lot, actually, when I was a kid. My mom, still to this day, one of the most passionate followers of Jesus that I know. And she was on staff at a church for a while as a children's ministry director. And um, so I was at church growing up, you know, three, four days a week. Um, But uh, early on in college, my freshman year of college, uh, when the sort of infrastructure um, of youth ministry and my youth group was gone, I went through uh, what is sadly now a very common uh, season of deconstruction. And um, so I spent a couple of years I think I probably considered myself an agnostic at that point. But long story short, in my very early 20s, came back to the Lord and um, have been doing my best to faithfully follow Jesus ever since. So, you know, a little over 20 years of truly sort of making my faith my own. So what um, was it that led you away from the faith? And then what was it that brought you back? That's a great question. You know, I think it wasn't uh, any one single thing. It was probably a number of things. Um, Really, I think what happened was growing up, being at church so much, rather than developing a really rich, robust faith in Jesus for myself, I was really just sort of leaning against the apparatus of my social connections at church, which is not a bad thing, but Um, my entire faith was wrapped up just in the apparatus of youth ministry. I was very involved. My closest friends were there. And um, when I went to college, several of those close friends of mine who also, you know, were in college as well, uh, their faith started crumbling and falling apart. And, and, you know, my faith had been so intertwined and connected with theirs that uh, my faith, started sort of crumbling as well. So, yeah, you know, it's hard to say that it was any one thing, but um, that was, that was my journey. Mm -hmm. And I can see how 
you know, going to college and you're being exposed to so many different ideas that how that could um, really cause you to um, check your faith if you were just taking it for granted for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. But then coming back to faith, or even just right now, what gives you confidence in the faith that it's more than just, um, you know, a man-made type of thing, but that it's really true? Yeah. I mean, it's a mixture of things. I think it wasn't until my early 20s that I really started um, digging into scripture for myself. You know, I had sort of grown up knowing a lot about the Bible, but had not spent a lot of time on my own reading and meditating on the scriptures. So that was a big part of it. And then um, just uh, opening myself up to the possibility that what the scriptures tell us is true, that for every follower of Jesus, the spirit of God dwells within us, makes his home in us. You know, he tabernacles in us and um, living with that sort of intrinsic understanding and awareness that God is as close as my next breath and beginning to see all of life through that lens um, allowed me to experience, I mean, you know, not to sound too overly, I'm not overly charismatic or anything, but it, it put me in a position where I was able to, and still to this day, I'm able to um, see life and experience life uh, through the lens of, of the reality of God's presence in my life. And, you know, you do that long enough coupled with the truth of scripture and um, it begins, at least for me and my experience, it begins to become sort of undeniable that God is present and real. And uh, and then, you know, just sort of classic um, uh, journeys through, um, you know, the apologetics world was really helpful to me. So, you know, really the hinge point was the resurrection of Christ. I think there's very little argument that Jesus was indeed a, a historical figure at minimum. So then the question becomes, well, is he more than just a man? Was he truly the son of God who lived and, and died and rose again? And, and you know, sort of classic traditional um, apologetics work. Uh, back in the day from people like Lee Strobel and others, um, I found all of that kind of stuff really helpful, immensely helpful in my own journey. Yeah. Um, so, um, for yourself, um, how do you, um, take in the word? Um, like, is there a routine to it? Do you meditate on it and memorize it? Is it, um, do you follow commentaries and so forth or, you know, what's your practice as far as being spiritually nourished by the word? Yeah, I mean, in terms of practices, it's it's pretty straightforward for me. So every morning, I, I try to meditate. You know, there's a there are different approaches to scripture. I think primarily the Bible is meditation literature. Um, you know, some people are familiar with the Bible Project, and um, the guys there are you know dear friends of mine. And and Tim talks a lot about scripture primarily being meditation literature and i found that to be true in my own experience so every morning while i you know pour my coffee um, before the kids are awake every morning i uh, i meditate on scripture and typically what that means for me is meditating and praying the psalms 
I just prayed Psalm 70 this morning. I just literally roll through the Psalms, you know, constantly. Um, and then spending, spending some time um, reading and meditating on the Gospels. I try to do that every morning as well, just reading the Jesus story, recentering myself on the person of Jesus, who he is, and his authority in my life. So, yes, you know, I think my daily nourishment comes, scriptural nourishment comes from meditating on the scriptures, particularly the Psalms and the Gospels. And then, um, and then there's, a, there's a whole different mode of studying the scriptures. And yeah, that involves a lot of commentary work. And, you know, right before I jumped on this call with you, I was, uh, you know, in my role as a pastor, it's, it's one of my great joys and privileges is that I, I get to spend uh, significant portions of my day studying the scriptures with the intent and purpose of inviting God to do transformative work in me through his word, and then hopefully being able to communicate and translate that for our people. So um, it's one of the things I love most about my work. And um, so I, I spend, you know, much of my week studying the scriptures as well. And that, yes, that involves a lot of commentary work and i was reading um uh, a bunch of you know james dunn's work on galatians this morning and so yeah that's you know there are two different modes but they're both enriching in uh, significant ways meditating on scripture and studying it as well um so just you know before we kind of get to colossians i just want to ask you about biblical studies i'm familiar mm. with bible project and um, i was just listening to um their podcast just earlier today and um and that's my main exposure now to biblical studies and it seems so um different than what is typically you know what you typically get in church settings like um it seems that in church settings, you're getting something, you know, through the the lens of a particular tradition, and you know, it's so depending on what church you go to. But biblical study seems to be a more open, like really just um, there's no uh, particular. Uh, it's probably naive to think there's no um, even in biblical studies. There's, there's, it's like totally objective, but it does seem to be like a different approach. And I'm just, one of the things that, that I just wonder is like, why do we not have more of this in the church? And maybe you yeah. do in your church. Um, yeah. But um, it just seems to be like, just kind of strange, you know, like when I bring up some of the things like the Bible Project type of stuff, it just seems kind yeah. of strange to other people in the church. And um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that biblical studies well, and stuff like that? Sure. I mean, I think it depends on the church, right? There's over <laughs> 300,000 evangelical Protestant evangelical churches in America. Um, and they all vary. Yeah. Depending on tradition, denominational sort of history, just philosophy of ministry, uh, you know, my big overarching blanket statement would be that I am grateful for all churches that preach um, Christ crucified and resurrected, preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, um, the fact that Jesus is the singular way, the truth, and the life to God the Father. I'm grateful for all of the various expressions, whether it's large, 
mega churches with thousands of people where maybe the preaching is a lot more this is a, a this is a um you know a gross overstatement and and really sort of a caricature and generalization but you know maybe maybe it's a large mega church where all of the sermon series are like you know um, how to have the best marriage ever or whatever. I, I can have personal opinions about that and my own personal preferences on what effective preaching is or isn't in our day and age. But bottom line, I would say, whether it's the large mega church that's preaching, you know, maybe more sort of felt need type sermons or a house church network where they're just doing expository learning, where it's just word by word, verse by verse, or something in between, I'm grateful for any and all churches that, again, are preaching Christ crucified and resurrected and the gospel, you know, the good news that Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, and ascended, and will return someday, and that faith in him leads us to life and life to the full, both now and on into eternity. I would say, um, you know, for us, and that's really all I could speak to is just our church, um, and I don't think we're alone. In fact, I know we're not alone, I think, and I'm encouraged by this. I think there is an increasing number of churches around the country and the world that, you know, influenced by organizations like the Bible Project and so many others are beginning to teach um, the scriptures in, in a hopefully more robust, um, maybe theologically centered uh, way. And I'm really encouraged by that. That's certainly true of our church. You know, tonight actually we'll have like 150, 200 people gather to listen to a two and a half hour lecture about Paul's letters, you know? So there's a real mm-hmm. hunger, uh, mm-hmm. at least in, in our community. And I know we're not alone. Um, I've got friends who serve churches all over the country who are doing very similar things where there seems to be a growing tide of churches that are saying, you know what, let's not just tell people why Jesus is, you know, helpful to their life peripherally, but let's really teach people how to study the scriptures in a meaningful way, uh, believing that if we can do that, um, you know, the Bible comes alive. And and uh, not only does it become sort of a peripherally helpful tool, it becomes, you know, God's story unfolding through scripture becomes the center you know, it becomes the epicenter of, of our lives. And I think that's what we're after as a church. And, and I'm really encouraged because I, I see a lot more churches sort of approaching things that way as well. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, why Colossians? Great question. Um, lots of reasons. One, well, maybe the primary reason uh, several years ago when um, our church did a teaching series through Colossians and we were doing the research and the study for it, I just began to see so many parallels from uh, parallels between what the early Christians in the city of Colossae were facing, the challenges they were facing um, in terms of fa- following Jesus faithfully. I just saw so many parallels to the challenges we face in our day and age. So Um, You know, most scholars agree that Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian Christians uh, in large part to address what biblical scholars call the Colossian heresy. There is debate on what that heresy was exactly. Um, You know, people go back and forth on the details of it. But what is sort of clear is that the early Christians in, in Colossae 
had um, found themselves prone to syncretism, which is a fancy word simply to describe the the fusing of various beliefs and practices from a wide variety of religious traditions. So the majority of of the new Christians in Colossae, um, you know, many of them were Jews, ethnic Jews, but many of them, really the majority of them were Gentiles who were committing their lives to the way of Jesus from a previous religious tradition. And what these early Christians in Colossae were doing was they were bringing in, syncretizing uh, their previous belief systems into their new life in Jesus. And to be a Christian in Colossae, uh, it was turning into this weird sort of hodgepodge fusion of various beliefs, um, a a sort of buffet approach to Christian faith, a little bit of this from this tradition and a little bit of that. And um, Paul is writing this letter to them in large part to address uh, that mistake. And he's saying, no, no, you don't understand. Christ is the center of all things. You don't get to pick and choose. You pledge your life to Jesus and Jesus alone. And I just, as I studied that, I realized, man, that is in large part the, the culture we live in today, you know, where as Christians, even we find ourselves so often picking and choosing and trying to craft and curate a Christian faith that is suitable to us. You know, we live in a, in such an individualistic autonomous culture um, that it feels offensive for anyone to tell us, no, there is one way and only one way. Um, But that is certainly what Paul says. It's what Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, I singular, I am, the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And um, that sort of singular uh, emphasis on the person of Jesus being the singular way, the truth, and the life is something that I think we risk losing in the autonomous, individualistic culture of our day, as was the case 2,000 years ago in the first century world of, of Colossae. Yeah, um, I don't see it in my circle, church circles so much, but when just chatting with people at the gym or here or there, there is that um, idea that everything is just, you know, uh, alike, um, that it's, uh, you know, you just sincerely believe whatever you have and that's what's important. It's not that there's one thing way that is right. Um, when it comes to Jesus being the only way, um, and, um, no one comes, you know, to God through Jesus. Um, how tightly does that correspond? And I hope this ain't too far off topic with, um, you know, just an understanding of Jesus. Um, for example, um, um, you know, my, in my own conversion, um, I I don't remember thinking about Jesus or understanding Jesus, though I I know I had been exposed to the to that, but um, I just remember that I was morally disgusting, and I had and I just needed God to save me from who I had become, and then mm. calling out to Him and having an, an encounter with Him where 
um, guilt was just lifted from me and I just felt cleansed. And, you know, he, he, I knew I was forgiven. Um, and then everything opened up to me, the Bible and the gospel and Jesus and everything like that. So I'm just, so that's always just a little bit, um, confusing. Uh, can that, you know, so does the, the knowledge of Jesus have to be tightly linked with still, um, with, um, Jesus is the only way in meaning that that's the only way God can express forgiveness. That's the only way he can redeem because that atonement has been paid. So this is my question kind of, is it kind of confusing yeah. or is it okay? No, 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 no. I understand yeah. what you're saying. I mean, if I'm understanding the question right. correctly, yeah, there's yeah. a simplicity to the answer and the answer is yes. At least yeah. that whether people believe that or not, what is clear is that that is Jesus's claim which is accentuated by Paul throughout his letters and the other New Testament writers. Again, going back to John 14, um, Jesus indicates in no uncertain terms that he is the only path to God. Now, again, whether a person believes that or not is a, is a different matter. But what is undeniable is that that is Christ's claim. You know, there's that, um, I'm going to paraphrase it and probably butcher it here, but there's that famous quote from, C.S. Lewis about Jesus, that someone who would make a claim like this is either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. <laughs> like You really don't have a middle. He's either crazy, like how, how dare he? I mean, he's lost his mind. He thinks he's the only way. Um, there's such exclusivity there. Or he's a liar. He knows better, but he's just choosing to lie to the world and, and say that he is the only way when in fact he isn't. Or he's, it's true. And he's Lord. He's Lord of all things. And there is no other way to life to the full, eternal life here and now and forever. So that is seems undeniable to me mm-hmm. that um, the claim he makes and the claim that Paul makes about him, even in Colossians, you know, there's the famous Christ poem in the first chapter of Colossians, you know, verses 15 to 20, Paul says that, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, calls him the firstborn over all creation, which was like really loaded language in the first century world. Um, Hmm. You know, Paul says that in Jesus, everything was created. Jesus is before everything. In him, everything holds together. He's the head of the church. He has all the supremacy. I mean, you you don't get much more singular than that. So yeah, I think that that is orthodox historical you know biblical christian belief is that jesus is the one and only way that he has the supremacy that he's the king of the universe which means no one else is right so he is the only way that we can ever come to god but um do we how much knowledge or understanding of jesus is required um for us to enjoy the benefits of that, I guess is what I'm kind of asking. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, what I would say is that question is really laced with the the ethic of our day, which is, you know, we live in the information age mm-hmm. um, where we've come to believe that having right knowledge is the thing that saves us. But Jesus is not information. He's a person. <laughs> so having the right information about him is is of utmost consequence, but 
only in as much as it allows us to know him personally um, more deeply. So really, you know, the question, how much do we need to know about Jesus or of Jesus in order to, you know, be within the sort of saving, you know, knowledge of his grace or something is an important question. We should pursue deeper knowledge of who he is, you know, studying the scriptures, the gospels in particular, his teachings. But really all of that is a means to an end. And the end is to know him. He is a knowable person like an actual person. And what the scriptures make clear to us is that he lives in us. He's close as our very next breath by his spirit. You know, he says, Hey, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to send a gift. And it is the gift of my spirit that will dwell in you. So in fact, I am not actually leaving you. He's with us now and embodied in every believer. You know, that's what it means that God's people are now the temple or the tabernacle which is the place. It was the geographic location where God would come down. And it was the, you know, the overlap This is, um, you know, words of N.T. Wright, the overlap of heaven and earth. That is what the tabernacle and the temple were. And humans, you know, followers of Jesus today, we are now the tabernacle and the temple. So we are the overlap between heaven and earth, which means that we are the place where God resides right here on, on the planet. And um, that's what we're after to know him, you know, on a personal, personal level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really cool that God dwells in us, works through us. And that's, and that's Jesus. And he's as close as that. Um, Old Testament, you know, people before the time of Christ, Jesus was the only way for them as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to Exodus 40, um, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle, this tent-like structure in the wilderness. And then God's presence literally, physically, tangibly resides in the tabernacle, you know, a pillar of cloud by day. And and then the cloud is uh, illuminated by a pillar of fire at night. Now, you know, the question, the natural question is, well, why does God need to do that? Isn't God everywhere all the time? Isn't he omnipresent? And the answer is yes, he is. And he was back then and he is today. But God makes a decision over and over again throughout the scriptures to go local. He localizes himself so that people would know exactly where and how to find him, you know? And um, and then you go to the New Testament and, you know, Colossians uh, talks about, you know, Paul's letter here that we're exploring, talks about um, the fullness of the deity dwelling in Jesus himself. And that language, fullness, it's like very emphatic tabernacle temple language. It harkens back to when God's presence resides within the tabernacle in the wilderness. And it is so full of God's glory that Moses literally physically can't go inside. That's what the story tells us in Exodus 40. So now Jesus is that fullness. God's tangible presence resides in Jesus. And then you go to other parts of Paul's writings, Ephesians 2 being one of those places. And he Paul makes it very clear, you now are the tabernacle. And you have been brought to fullness. You know, in Colossians, he says the same thing, actually. Colossians 2, uh, he says, in Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells, the fullness of God dwells. And then he says, and now you, God's people, have been brought to that same fullness. Again, 
It's emphatic tabernacle temple language. God's presence is quite literally tangibly in us. So, yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, it is the presence of God in the believer that is, um, you know, the central sort of reality that should shape how we see ourselves and our world and our purpose here. Yeah. I wonder if the main way we experience that is like when we are exercising the gifts, you know, and when we are, you know, because that's God working through us. And, um, I, um, I'm sure there's other ways that we experience Jesus in us. One question, um, that I have is like, I just flipped over to it. Um, uh, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And is this um, referring to, um, like, I guess it's referring to the com- return of Christ. Um, and and I've heard different people kind of explain this differently, like um, uh, sometimes it someone might give the impression that Christ um, is like uh, coming as like in a bodily form through space to, to planet earth and he'll come through the atmosphere. And, and that's what the return of Christ might be like. And then some people refer to places in the new Testament where it uses words more like this, like there's going to be a revealing, like the blinds will fall off our eyes and we will just see him in some way though that's pretty vague and i don't know exactly what that means but do you have any thoughts about um you know what this will be the the revealing of christ yeah i mean you're right there's lots of debate about you know this is like there was so much conversation when i was growing up in the church about end times theology and the rapture and what is that is it in the bible is it real is it not all those sorts of things um yeah i mean i think it's a debatable matter but i do think that paul's interest is not primarily in the functionality of what actually literally happens when christ returns I think he is much more interested in um, giving us a framework for understanding how to live life now. So that that passage you read from Colossians three, you know, it's sort of sandwiched in between the the previous section where Paul's essentially just talking about all of these again these religious traditions that had become sort of the main thing for the Colossian Christians they they really desired these sort of religious traditions and and sort of ecstatic experiences and on and on and he basically is like listen all of these human rules and human structures for religion and you're free from those things because your life is in Jesus and then after that what Paul will say is you've got to put to death all of these earthly nature things, you know, immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, all of that stuff on and on. And sandwiched, you know, in between those two sections is this, this line, this beautiful line, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know, that word appear, which is in that line, Colossians 3, 4, a couple of times, it's the Greek word phanero, and it, it, it literally means like to bring to clarity. So it's not so much that like Jesus has gone far, far away and then someday he'll, 
you know, ride down on this majestic cloud from a distance and then he'll descend. Who knows? Maybe that'll happen. But that's not Paul's point. I think his point is at some point in the future, the reality of Christ will become clear to all, the entire world. And when that happens, your life will take on utmost clarity. So, so live as such. You know, all of these other things, Paul actually has this wonderful thing he does in the previous section where um, he talks about shadows and reality. He's actually borrowing there from um, a, what was a, a very famous uh, sort of um, story from Plato's Republic uh, about these cave people who live in a cave and they their whole lives, they've just seen these shadows up against the wall and they think the shadow is the reality. Paul's actually sort of acknowledging that really well-known metaphor at the time and he's using that to say like that's what most of our lives are we think that our earthly reality is the only reality there is but they're actually shadows there's a much deeper reality it is the reality of jesus and his rule and reign over all things and someday that reality will be brought to total clarity and that's what paul means when he says christ will appear he will he his rule and reign will be made clear. And when that happens, your life will take on a sort of brand new clarity that you don't even quite understand yet. But in the here and now, you can live within light of that reality. So put to death all of your earthly nature and live in Christ-likeness, I think is the point he's trying to make. Hmm. Okay. Um. I guess, how has um, Colossians affected your own life in any just kind of particular ways? Oh, gosh, so many different ways. I would say really primarily it's just a beautiful, profound reminder to me of the centrality and supremacy of Jesus, that he's Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, there's always only one Lord. You know, monarchies, monarchies don't ever have two kings. Um, if Jesus is Lord, then nothing else is. I'm not Lord of my life, my desires, my preferences, my you know longing for convenience and comfort, my earthly desires, my fleshly desires, what culture tells me is most valuable. Those things are not Lord over my life. Only Jesus is. And I think you know that is the calling of the Christian to live under the Lordship of Jesus and to find freedom there. That we are not slaves under a, a tyrant king, but that we are heirs um, to his kingdom, that we are sons and daughters because of Jesus who has made a way for us. Um, so I think for me, that's been the primary takeaway amongst many other things and uh, has been such a helpful reminder on a personal level. Do you have any suggestions about how to talk um about Jesus with outsiders, those outside the faith. For me, the um, you know, I have the inclination to try to explain things too much. Like, you know, if I bring up Jesus and I say, well, he's the son of God, well, then, you know, that just brings in the Trinity, you know, and now do I need to explain what Trinity is or, you know, try um, – d- so do you have any thoughts about, um, you know, when just chatting with people outside of the faith, just how 
to most effectively talk with them about who Jesus is? I mean, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One more sort of philosophical approach and one more practical. So philosophically, I mean, I think our lives are the best apologetic. So rather than trying to convince someone to believe what we believe, I think the best approach, and I could be wrong, it's just my opinion, but I think the best approach is to embody how Jesus has changed our lives and to be clear uh, in a compelling way, in a loving, gracious, and compassionate way, why, why I believe in Jesus, why I have staked the entirety of my life and my future on his claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and how that has changed everything for me. I think that's the best apologetic we can offer someone, over and above just information, mm-hmm. although information is helpful for sure. Um, more practically, you know, at our church, we, um, we run a program called Alpha, which is a global program, you know, designed as a safe space for skeptics and doubters, but, you know, those who have questions about spiritual matters and, um, and that's been tremendously helpful for us as well. Okay. Um, so just one more question and then I'll just let you kind of say whatever you want about the study itself and. We'll, and then we'll just wrap up. But um, how, you know, how can we experience Jesus uh, more, like right now? And you mention from Colossians the putting away, you know, and there in Colossians three, I imagine that those things can keep us from experiencing more of Jesus and in a vivid way where we're rejoicing in Him and there's that connection and. Um, but just any other thoughts about how, um, you know, this relationship, Jesus in us being more than information and more than just, um, technical thing, but something that we're just living in and experiencing each day. Yeah. You know, um, uh, the writer Dallas Willard had this wonderful line. He, I'm paraphrasing him here, but. In his book, Hearing God, he he talks about how so many people used to ask him, you know, Dallas, I want to hear God, but I can't. He doesn't seem to be saying much. And then Dallas talks about how he would always ask them, well, does God have anything he needs to talk to you about? And what he meant by that was, are you living your life with God in such a way that um, you have shared experiences and and a shared endeavor that you are going on about? throughout your day that that requires conversation. And his whole point was that often we want to hear God in those moments when we think we need to hear God, when in reality, we need to hear God all the time because he's always speaking. And if, if Jesus really is central to our lives, then we need to make him truly central to our lives. So I guess my encouragement would be, um, you know, there's It's not like rocket science or anything profound. My encouragement would just be, what would it look like for us to live our lives every day in the presence of God, knowing that God, Jesus, by his spirit is actually in us. He's always accessible. He's as close as our next breath. 
what would it look like to be conversing with him in our hearts and in our minds throughout the day rather than just going to him in moments of crisis or before we eat a meal with a rote prayer, thanking God for our food or something? Um, that would be my encouragement. You know, um, we, we have to make Jesus central at all times and all things. And then it becomes a much more common experience to see him at all times and all things. Well, what about the guide? Is there anything else you want to say about the, the book and the video and the series? Um, and then how people can use it and find it and where should they use it at, at church, at home, or, you know, or just personally or that type of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, it's the, it's a video guide. Uh, so there's six video sessions and, um, it's called Colossians, uh, one Jesus, one people. It's a part of a series called 40 days through the book. Um, and yeah, there, the booklet has discussion questions for small groups or just for individuals. Um, so you can go at your own pace. It's kind of mapped out and designed to be able to deep dive into the book of Colossians over the course of 40 days, uh, across six key sections. But, um, yeah, you know, ultimately my hope is that it's helpful for folks in a way that, um, really changes, changes your perspective on, uh, what it means to follow Jesus today. Is it the type of thing to do in one's home and invite neighbors to, is it, you know, would it be, Appropriate yeah, for that. I mean, it's written. Yeah, the video content is written. Uh, the content was developed with you know followers of Jesus in mind, but I think that there are enough intersections with just culture and life in general that yeah, somebody who maybe isn't a Christian, I think, could also watch it, and hopefully, it's it's intriguing. Um, yeah, and it is designed primarily with you know sort of small groups in mind. So so the material is created in such a way that. It's you could easily kind of do it with a group of other people. Okay. And then do they just find it at Amazon, bookstores, that type of thing? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Anywhere, anywhere they sell books and videos. Okay. And then is there any way that um, people might follow you? Do you blog or is there anything else as far as if people want to stay up with you or learn more about you? Yeah, thank you for asking. Well, I have a little website, just jkimthinks.com, jkimthinks.com, and that's my handle on you know um, Instagram and Facebook and uh, Twitter and all of that, too. Okay. Well, thanks, Jay. It's been a privilege to talk with you, and it's been encouraging, and um, I'm excited about the study. So, I, so thank you. I appreciate you being a guest. Yeah. Oh, it's a joy. Thank you for having me.